Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Metadata. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 224 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in Ann Arbor. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. Before we get started, we'd like to thank our sponsors. Thanks first to Text Expander for sponsoring our show. Communicate smarter with Text Expander. Gather, perfect, and share your knowledge. Recall your best words instantly and repeatedly. Learn more at textexpander.com forward slash podcast. And we'd also like to thank ServeNow, a nationwide network of trusted, pre-screened process servers. Work with the most professional process servers who have experience with high-volume serves, embrace technology, and understand the litigation process. Visit servenow.com to learn more. In our last episode, we talked about how difficult it has become these days to make general technology recommendations as, as tech becomes more personalized. Tom and I were both at the College of Law Practice Management's Futures Conference last week. We thought we'd share our thoughts about the conference, which uh, I, I think is an important one in the grand scheme of things. And it's focused on cybersecurity and our own presentation on cybersecurity for collaboration tools. Tom, what's all on our agenda for this episode? Well, Dennis, in this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, we will indeed be discussing the College of Law Practice Management Futures Conference, cybersecurity, and uh, Dennis's apparent obsession with protecting the herd. We'll talk more about that. In the second segment, we'll talk about social media etiquette in the legal tech world. And as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation that you can start to use the second that this podcast is over. But first up, the College of Law Practice Management's Futures Conference, and uh, it's focused this year on cybersecurity. Uh, the College of Law Practice Management was formed uh, in 1994 to honor and recognize distinguished uh, law practice management professionals uh, to sort of adopt best practices for law practice management and, and to fund and assist several projects that enhance as they put it, the highest quality of law practice management. Every year, the Futures Conference addresses some hot topics, and this year, I think, was was really not any exception. It's Cybersecurity is definitely a hot topic. The people who attend, the people who are members of the college are really, I think, the rock stars of law practice management, whether they're at law firms, whether they're at legal services providers. It is, I think, truly humbling to be around uh, most of these people. Not most of them, all of these people. What am I talking about? Dennis, the Futures Conference for you, good time, bad time, or no time? Well, Conferences are always a good time for me, but I think this one I, I would put in a category of not enough time. Um, so I think there's such a great group of people to be part of. And it's it's one of those things where it truly is a conference uh, where you learn more out in the hallways and between sessions in many ways than you do in the actual sessions. And it, there are great people, uh, people I haven't seen for a long time, people I, I really value their opinions. So I would say generally not enough time because uh, there are too many scheduled things and I'd rather just just hang out with people. How about you? 
Well, you generally feel that way about every single conference, Dennis, so uh, not really a surprise there. Um, What I missed about, I think in general, I enjoyed the conference. I liked being around the people that were there. I think the content was good content. Um, What I miss about it and what I'm hoping we see more of in in the next couple of years is a little bit more interaction. This was more about people talking to the audience, and we'll, Janice and I will talk about kind of how we did our own version of that uh, for our session, um, where one of the things that I think sets the college apart and makes it interesting um, are the years where you're spending time in interactive breakout groups, and you're really getting things done and talking and brainstorming and putting something together and, and actually doing things rather than just listening. And, and so I, I look forward to maybe doing that again at upcoming years. Um, that said, though, I think the content was good. It's you know it's not necessarily a topic that lends itself to a ton of interactivity. There's some that we had some that went on and it was good, but I think cybersecurity is a, a good and important topic and it was worthy of being discussed. And so uh, I'm glad that we did it. Yeah, I'd, I'm always reminded of how much these days I love going to conferences where I get put to work. You know, you're part of some group, you come up with, uh, you know, something either like a legal design thing or, you know, some idea going forward. And I, I think you could do that actually with security, um, especially with some of the new developments out there. So we did get the chance to do that. So it's it's more sort of talking. And then I would say one of the 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 things I enjoyed, Tom, was that uh, I don't know how long it's been, but it, this is a, a rare in-person appearance for the two of us speaking on a on a topic. And I don't know what it's been. It feels like it's been like four or five years since uh, been a since, while. We, since we've gotten to do that, which, you know, is a good chance to remind our listeners that uh, you and I are always available to do uh, presentations at, at, at events. But this is fun, and, and I think it's worth talking about our our presentation because we did decide to uh, try to come up with a way uh, to be more interactive. And I don't think we did anything novel. We had John Mitchell as a, a great moderator who really wanted to work with us to kind of put those ideas in place. But I mean, we just started with the simple idea of asking the audience what they wanted to get out of the session. And uh, people kind of were slowly and, you know, saying and volunteering what they might want to learn about. But then, um, then they really started to come up with suggestions and that that helped us uh, take the presentation in the way that we wanted to go and that we just encourage questions all throughout. Yeah, I think I think it was a good way to get um, the juices flowing. I thought that they had lots. Of, in fact, it, they sort of guessed the sort of things we were going to talk about. They were very uh, uh, they were they, they were very intuitive into the types of topics we were going to cover. Although we didn't really cover everything that they had questions about, I think that they got you know most of the most of the things that we wanted to try and cover. Um, so and and what that tells me is they I think they got it. I think they understood the importance of it. Now whether they have a you know they represent um, you know a microcosm of the legal profession, and I would argue the microcosm or the part of the legal profession that actually has a better chance of getting it and advancing in security. This was a group that that could do that, and um, I don't know how you feel whether you know after coming away from this conference whether you feel like lawyers have. Uh, have advanced at all in terms of cybersecurity? We tend to still be in the same place that we've been all along, or is it just a very slow process? Oh, boy, Tom, I got to tell you, I look back at the presentations I've done on security over the years, and I almost feel I could 
give the same ones I gave from the beginning and still have people madly taking down notes. So I, I do I do have some concern about how far lawyers have advanced on security. I mean, I had a lot of interesting conversations, Tom, what, uh, you know, about, and you got the questions during the session about the password managers and how to, how to spell LastPass and, and stuff like that. So that's like a, a little discouraging. On the other hand, I think there is, a, you know, a general awareness of the importance of security, if not a good awareness of, of some of the procedures and and some of the 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 newer developments. And it's good to see that uh, you know with a group that's focused on law practice management and managing firms and leadership that there is that awareness and a, a, you know a willing to do something about it. But in terms of giving me confidence that lawyers and law firms have have really stepped it up on security, um, not so much. Well, and I think I agree. I, I, I What was interesting about the group was that I think that, like you say, that awareness was there. Um, lots of people talking about what big firms are doing. I think that big firms are starting to get a handle on security. We'll talk in a minute whether that's because of their clients or because they've gotten it on their own. But when it comes to the lawyers themselves, I would argue that I, I would agree with you that not much has changed. Now, they didn't have trouble spelling LastPass. It was actually Authy, the two-factor authentication <laughs> tool that they had. They, they wanted to know how to spell, and and that's fair. I'll give that to them. But when we asked them the question, "How many of you are using password managers? How many of you are using multi-factor authentication?" I would say that less than half of the room went up. Maybe even only a quarter of the room right. were actually doing that. And so, you know, even though there's awareness out there, whether they're putting some of that awareness to work in their personal lives or in their professional computing lives, I think there's still a lot of work to do. Well, I think that's the, the old question is, you know, it's it's pretty easy to talk the talk, but then when it comes to walking the walk, it is it is more difficult. And so that that's giving me concern. And I, I got it in some ways, uh, Tom, it's, it's what's happening at the big firm level that gives me more concern because uh, I, I think there can be more things at risk. And, you know, given my, my former role at MasterCard, sometimes when I hear what big firms are doing, it's a a little bit scary given what what information they tend to have but i think it generally the like you said i think there's improved awareness but the actual follow-through gives me some concern well in a rare moment of disagreeing with you i and i'm only going to disagree with you partly i would say that big firms are positioned the best to have their security under control. They hire the right people who have the right ideas. That's my argument anyway. They've got the money to be able to do that. I think the bigger firms should be getting it right. Whether they're doing it right or not is, is the question. I still worry more about the smaller firms. We're seeing, I'm seeing lots of big work going to small boutiques and the smaller the firm, the less ability they have, the less knowledge they have, you know, the, the less resources that are available to take care of their own security. I frankly think that the small firms have the bigger security problems. They may have less information worth taking. Maybe I should say less information worth uh, a, a hacker or, or, or a thief's time. But uh, I would argue that the security is not any better, if not worse. 
Yeah, I don't, I don't know there. I mean, I, it's, there's something to be said on, uh, on both of those points. I guess that where I'd expect to see more progress was on uh, the bigger firm size. I'm just not sure that we're seeing that at this point. Tom, in the presentation, though, you uh, got to make my usual point about uh, the herd and protecting the herd uh, and how that enters in the notion of uh, collaboration tools and cybersecurity. You wanna, do you want to run down that, that notion of, of the herd? Well, I think it, um, it follows along with the discussions that people have these days about vaccinations, that you shouldn't be getting vaccinations for yourself because you're going to protect yourself. You're getting a vaccination because you're going to be protecting other people. And so, like as you like to mention, it's, it's herd immunity. And when, you're, uh, when your security is lacking, when you are allowing bad things to get in, then you are hurting the rest of the herd. You're hurting your collaborators um, when that happens. So if you're working with, uh, if you're in a law firm and you're working with people who are either with your client or with other law firms or anywhere outside of your firewall, if for some reason you let a security flaw get in because of, of your poor security awareness, then you put everybody else at risk. And I think this is something that a lot of people don't pay attention to because security tends to be, at least when it comes to collaboration or when it comes to using their own computing, I think security still tends to be a very selfish issue and people really only think about what they're doing themselves. And sometimes they're not thinking about that. And um, and they, you need when it comes to collaboration, you really need to think about how your actions are going to affect other people. Yeah, I mean, it's, to me, the notion is you have the herd of antelope or the herd of of, of zebra and the lions are out there and as long as everybody in the herd is working together paying attention then as the herd we're much safer than if we were on our own but when people don't pull their weight for the herd then all, all of a sudden the lions have a, have an entry point and so I think that sometimes you know Tom I, I you know you and I, I I think we do a good job on security you know compared to the norm especially but it seems like if you're if I'm doing all this work and then I I'm interacting with people who just do it terrible job on security you know reuse passwords don't use multi-factor you know any of the any of the basics then i i just feel that they're putting me at way more risk uh, because they they don't want to be bothered and so that's why i say this think of the herd well so let's maybe take that in a different direction and say that what can we do about that so how do we get our partners to our level of security. And when I say our, that could mean that we're the client and we're getting the lawyers to our level of security, or we're the lawyers and we're getting our clients or our collaborators to that level of security. Dennis, I guess the question is who drives who? Well, I think there's a couple things, and this is the point that that came up, and it's it's one of those things that, in its in a sense, has has no definitive answer. But I think internally, I'm a big believer in the driving security from the top down, and I think that anytime you grant a pass to your higher level people and managing partners, where you don't. Know, 
let passwords uh, policies apply to them or they don't have to change their passwords or you accept them from certain things, that's going to filter down to the rest of the firm and it's going to cause cause problems. So I, I think there's a, you set the message at the top, you put a priority on, on security, um, you have an awareness of what the clients need so especially if you're regulated areas, um, and then then use that as the point, and then then pick, you know, where you have problems. So you're doing some monitoring, and these days it's phishing that's a big problem. So these these emails that are designed to get you to give up information or to click on things, and there's training you can do. There's testing that you can do on that, and then basic training on social engineering will help as well as doing I mean there's a checklist these days of things that you would you would do on the security side and then I think that probably one of the most controversial things I said and certainly from the reaction I got is if if people don't don't follow uh, security policies and they cause problems um, they need to be punished for that and that includes being fired do you think that also applies to law firms? If a law firm doesn't follow a client's security policy, that law firm should be fired too? I mean, I, we talked about it. I, I, I'm assuming you're talking about it on an individual employee level. Does that apply to the firm too? Yeah, I think it totally applies to the outside firm. So if I'm using an outside firm, and there's, there's an example of people use the DLA example in almost every presentation they were part of. And somebody made the point that, you know, after they had the security issues they had, they had a very profitable year. And I was like, wait, they mean they, they paid no economic penalty for that? And I, I just think that if you have the outside firms, especially if you have your, you have sensitive data and there's some kind of breach that you can't just go on as business as usual. And I would definitely look to replace that firm uh, immediately. Uh, but I, I think I'm way in the minority on that among uh, most clients of, of big law firms. But I, I just don't see how you can, uh, you know, given what's at stake for a lot of uh, people and a lot of clients, why you would be willing to tolerate that. Well, I think that, you know, one of the comments that was raised during the session was that um, for many, the benefits of collaboration outweigh the risks. And I'm not sure I totally am in line with that. I think it really depends on the situation. Um, but what what all of this does raise to me, and I, I do think there need to be consequences. I, I don't know absolutely that firing a firm is the only right consequence for that, but I know there, there's got to be consequences for having bad security hygiene. But here's something that I posed during the, the conference, and, and I still don't know that there's a good answer to this, which is, what's a law firm's responsibility in dealing with the security of collaboration tools? Is the law firm under a duty to be driven by what the client wants to use and that the client comes and says, we're going to use this tool, tool A, for collaboration and you need to learn how to use it and learn how to be secure on using it? And then when client B comes in, they're going to say, we want you to use collaboration tool B. And before you know it, they have 60 different collaboration tools that the law firm is responsible for not only knowing how to use, uh, but also using it securely. 
Um, why not can there be some sort of model where the law firm develops one or two or maybe three different collaboration tools and says to the client, hey, here are the different ways that we collaborate. Which one makes the most sense for you? We have guaranteed the security of these tools by, and then describe how you've guaranteed that security. But that, I think, reduces the burden on the law firm while still reaching the goal of providing a secure collaboration tool for their client. I, I think the, the first option, which is more the norm right now, I just think it's unworkable. I think the problem is that we've always advocated the approach that you've talked about in, in our book and and elsewhere. And and it's the question I always ask. That I always feel that uh, the law firms and lawyers should take a leadership role, thought leadership and otherwise, in security is a natural place for lawyers. Confidentiality is so important, and we can we can take the lead in that. And I think you're right. If you're having conversations with clients about what they want, they're willing to look to you if you take a leadership role. And so if you say, we've looked at these collaboration tools, here's what makes sense to us. Here are some platforms that we think will work well. We want to understand how you communicate with us and how that will work. Um, and if they don't, here are some ways that we we can trade information between things, or maybe there are some common ground that we can do that. I think you can go a long ways as a, as a law firm or lawyer in, in kind of leading the discussion around that and also taking into account what the client needs. Now, having been what I would say more on the client side and the large client side for the last good number of years, I I tend to have the perspective that the law firm needs to accommodate what I want or I, you know, there, there are other law firms that, that may may do that. So that is out there, but I think taking that thought leadership role and you know, conversation, communication with the clients and figuring out what will work best or how different platforms can interoperate uh, will become really important. So um, one of the questions that got raised during the conference and that we tried to answer during our session, which is, is the idea of, of how to get users in a frame of mind to be security conscious, how to create a culture of security. And I think we had, between the two of us, I thought we had some pretty good responses to that. Dennis, what's your take on developing a, a security culture? Well, I referred to some of it, you know, I think uh, heavy emphasis on training and especially on the basics. I think there's also a lack of understanding about what what I'll call a hacker is its goal is in the path they take into a system and what they're trying to do at each point and how your security practices can have an impact on those standard form of attacks and then identifying where things are, are likely to come and the basic. I mean, I think there's, to me, there's kind of a half dozen or so standard steps that it seems that most people feel are too inconvenient to bother with, but they cause you know, a huge amount of the problems. So I, I think there's that showing, uh, you know, it does come down to leadership. You need to set an example from the top of the organization and don't allow exceptions because it's inconvenient for the managing partners because they don't want to be bothered to change passwords and, and that sort of thing. So if you can do that and then follow it up, 
um, I think, with some kind of metrics, you know, so the testing on the fishing and let people know how, how they're doing, consequences definitely, and then use uh, a Microsoft Secure Score as a, as a way to measure um, how you're doing on security and to give you a, a baseline and, and some targets and a way to, to measure that. I think you combine all of those things and then have a sensitivity client data, I, I think you're going to be way ahead of uh, most people these days. Yeah, no, I think the secure score is a great way. And, and just so you, um, for those of you who aren't aware about it, you can go in if you're an Office 365 user and you can find out what your security score is in using Office 365. And it's, um, I think, a really uh, sobering look at how we uh, apply security in our area. And I would really like to see this being used more often in the other software tools we use. Um, I think that real quick, just to mention some of the areas where I would um, talk about creating that security culture. I think training is important, but I think that it needs to be training that lets people know that security belongs to everyone, that it's not just information security's role or that there are the security people. We're all security people, and we need to bake that into whatever types of communication or awareness training. The awareness training also needs to be honest. If people make mistakes and things happen that are bad, you need to be able to share that with the people to say, hey, look, we're all human, but here are some of the things that are happening that I think can go a long way in letting people know here's what we need to avoid. In addition to consequences, there also need to be rewards. If people do the right thing, if they change their password regularly or or if they get a password manager or are using multi-factor authentication, there ought to be some sort of prizes or awards for that to help encourage that behavior. And then I think you mentioned phishing challenges and things like that. I think making security fun, you know, making it interesting um, having the competition to see who can spot the fake email that's trying to steal all of your information, I think is valuable. I think that making it fun so that it's something people enjoy doing um, will help make, you know, increase that awareness and let people realize that it belongs to everyone. So maybe uh, to, to take uh, ourselves out of this segment, what would be your major takeaways from, from our session, maybe from the conference itself? Uh, what do you have? I think that uh, for me, I just I just see that security remains a big challenge, even at the most basic level, and we're not even to the point where people are looking at Internet of Things and other things that will be out there that are are really going to ramp up security issues in in a lot. Of, of different ways. So I think that's an important thing of, of keeping up with what's what's going on there. And then at the small firm level, I think we're probably see, going to see a move over time to either outsourced or cloud-based security just because it's way too much for any small organization to do to, to get the talent and the tools in place to handle security. So that's an area that I would look for, you know, managed, outsourced, or cloud security services. And the one takeaway that I'm going to give is actually a chance to um, to raise the point that I raised of several podcasts ago, where I made the offer on this podcast to help people out learning how to use a password manager. And I am ashamed to say that I got zero response to that. And I know that. 
not all the listeners here either use a password manager. And the, and if you do, I know that not all of you are using it the way that it needs to be used. I'm just convinced that there are some of you who could use some help getting control of your password. So I'm going to say, as your action item from this podcast, drop me a line, contact me. Let's get started on our password manager today. You will not regret it. Let's take a break for a message from our sponsors before we head on to the next segment. Text Expander is a productivity multiplier. Lawyers love Text Expander because with a short abbreviation or search while typing, Text Expander can produce cover emails for invoices or signing instructions, insert templates for consistent meeting notes, perform accurate date math on the fly, and instantly present things you retype all the time. Text Expander runs on Macs, iPhones, iPads, and Windows and works in any application. Visit TextExpander.com slash podcast for 20% off your first year. Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry. Connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high-volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit www.servenow.com. And now let's get back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. This is sort of the uh, pet peeves segment, uh, I think, at least for me. So I've had a couple of conversations lately about the people who use social media to say something like this. Many speakers on AI, blockchain, or other legal tech topics at conferences don't have a clue about what they're talking about. However... I am too polite to name their names. To paraphrase the famous movie line, are you talking about me? I think these comments, Tom, go back to the early days of blogging and and social media. And I, I don't know how they really help things. I get that the people who make these comments think that it helps them market themselves as speakers who know what they are talking about, but I don't see how it advances the discussion of legal tech issues or education about legal tech at all. I mean, I think that we should have ways to say, here's what our specific concerns are, um, here's what we think people are you know, not talking about or not addressing clearly, but this approach, I I've seen it really upset people because it paints with such a broader brush. It it makes everyone feel that they're being accused of being incompetent. Am I overreacting, Tom? So there's a lot to unpack here. You started out by saying people who use social media to say this. That's what you said first. And so let's be honest. People who use social media say crazy, dumb, wrong, useless things on social media. And so I think you have to always take those types of comments with a massive grain of salt. But that said, and maybe you disagree with me here, I do think there are a lot of people out there who don't know enough about blockchain or AI or other complicated topics. But guess what? They're getting asked to speak on conferences on these topics. I think that's always been the case with legal technology. There are those who really 
don't know quite enough on the subject. But frankly, even when you know a little bit on a tech subject, you probably know more than most of the lawyers in the average conference audience. Now, you know, do we want the commenters to name these people who don't know this stuff? I think that seems kind of mean. So, so just saying I'm too polite to name names, I really think that this is a useless statement to make. I think it doesn't help to move forward any type of legal technology. I think that there's a grain of truth in it. I think that there is a little bit there that there are people out there who probably don't know enough about the topic, but the but social media does not prevent them from spouting off about it. You and I have had the conversation about people who we think that that we based on what they say, we're not sure how educated or how well off they are. There's a lot of things that I don't talk about on social media because I know I know uh, don't know enough about it, but I will say there are not as people with the same kind of impulse control that I may have when they get on social media. So, you know, I think that was kind of a dumb comment to make and I wouldn't I wouldn't you generally put that out there in public, but you know, there may be a point there. Well, I think that uh, what I got thinking about in, in, in some of the conversations I had is how could we, if you perceive this as an issue, then how can you be productive about that? Can you address the people individually? Because most people are actually willing to to be helped on on things if if you uh, you have something to say. Or can we kind of say if we're talking about some of these topics, here are some things that would be good to cover, you know, or you know that that sort of thing. So I, I think there's helpful, constructive ways to do this. I think it's just such an an odd thing to do. Uh, you know, because time we just we just talked about cybersecurity and collaboration tools. If like you know, you saw something where we said, you know, people talking about cybersecurity on collaboration tools really don't know what they're talking about, but I won't name any names, then I'm gonna go like, oh <laughs> why don't you say something to me personally uh, and kind of help out the whole not to go back to the herd again, but kind of help out the whole ecosystem and the herd by saying let's let's kind of see if we can get more on the same page and and kind of more accurate in what we do so it could be a pet peeve but like before you you start to say you know all people uh, speaking about this don't know what they're talking about you might want to kind of either explain why you're saying that or do a little more research on the people who are who are actually talking about it so I'll ask a question real quick. So is that an opportunity for you to reach out to the people who say that and ask that question to them? I mean, I think that's an opportunity. Is it something that belongs on social media or do you reach out back channel? I think a lot of this stuff is is back channel. And it's like one of the things where I really, you know, where you see the limitations of, of social media and, and Twitter in particular. So back in the days when the main way people communicated was blogs, that you would say, oh, I have a concern about this, and here are some examples, and here's some things I could see who are, could be done better, and then somebody might respond with a thoughtful blog post. Now you just people just throwing out these really short, you know, uh, angry or uh, you know, super judgmental short tweets with no explanation, and I, I think it just causes a lot of bad feelings. And it's really impossible to make that kind of damning judgment of somebody and explain it in 140 characters. 
you know, so that's a concern. I always prefer the back channel thing, but that's that's me, you know, because then if you have the back channel thing and you, you come to some, you know, meeting of the minds, you can actually work together with that person on an article that maybe puts, uh, you know, some constructive points out. So now it's time for that parting shots at one tip website or observation. You can use the second this podcast ends. Tom, take it away. So it is time for me to make another gadget recommendation or at least talk about a new gadget. This is sort of the season of new gadgets, and I've got new phones and new laptops. And and one of the ones that I got that I didn't really expect to like as much as I do is another Google Home device, and it's from Google. Google has introduced the Google Home Hub, which is a display that carries the Google Assistant in it. Now, what I don't like about it is that it's small. It's only the screen is only slightly bigger than my phone. It's about a seven inch screen, so it's fairly small for a frame. But I will tell you, it's one of the best digital frames I think I've ever owned. Um, the quality is very good. What's nice about it is that it claims to be smart. So you connect it up to your Google Photos. You've got to have Google Photos to do it. You connect it up to Google Photos, and it will only show you the best pictures from Google Photos. And I got to tell you, the pictures that I've seen so far have really, I've got a lot of bad pictures in Google Photos, and I haven't seen any yet come up here. And so I think it's it's curating them in some interesting way. So in addition to the photos, it also is a full-fledged Google Assistant. So you can talk to it. You can ask it uh, about the time or the weather. It'll show you YouTube videos. Um, it will show you a great way to, to cook recipes. You can. It, it has a great way of displaying recipes so you can cook in the kitchen. Um, I think it's a great, and, and I think, frankly, for all of these assistant devices, uh, the, the best part is the price. It's only 150 bucks, and so it's pretty, pretty reasonably priced for one of these tools. It's the Google Home Hub. Tom, I, I have uh, Google IV, which actually allows you to plug a needle right into yourself, and, it, and Google can just draw all the information out of you. So uh, that I, could be I, next I, on I your need, list. I need that, yes. <laughs> you obviously need that. So I have one that's uh, called Q&A Markup. So I had this conversation um, at the College of uh, Law Practice Management uh, induction dinner with Gabe Tannenbaum at uh, Suffolk University and Dan Lynn at Northwestern, who both teach in the, the area of uh, legal tech and applying technology to law. And one of the tools they use with their students is a website that allows you to do simple programming. It's called Q&A Markup. And Q&A Markup dot uh, org. Uh, that's Q-N-A markup. And it's a, a real simple kind of question and answer uh, decision tree tool that allows you to create a little app-like structure. And they convinced me I need to try this. So I'm going to try this and I'm going to recommend it to other people as well. But it looks like you can, uh, a really simple way to do decision tree type approaches. And, and one of the points that they made is that if they like using with their law students, because if you're looking at an area of law and you just want to program it into like a Q&A approach with decision trees, you know, if yes, then these questions, if no, then these questions, then you have to have a really strong fundamental understanding of that legal process. And that was attractive to me. And then also having a simple way to do uh, decision trees and a little bit of coding um, on some other processes that I, I might be doing make this an especially interesting 
interesting tool. So whether this will give you the answer to the question, should lawyers learn to code? I don't know whether it will. I doubt that it will. I don't know how relevant that question ultimately is. But if you want to experiment with the tool, you can join me in experimenting with Q&A markup. And so that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. You can find show notes for this episode at tkmreport.com. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or on the Legal Talk Network site, where you can find archives of all of our previous podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch with us, reach out to us on LinkedIn or leave us a voicemail at 720-441-6820. We'd love to use your question for our B segment. So until the next podcast, I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. And you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report, a podcast on legal technology with an internet focus. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. And we'll see you next time for another episode of the Kennedy Mile Report on the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together, from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, only on the Legal Talk Network.